0: July 11th, 2021. Summer on the Mount. Week 1. The Beatitudes.
1: I love all four seasons. I am an unapologetic spokesperson for the months of October, November. I love it when every leaf gets painted red, orange, or yellow, and the most ordinary of neighborhoods becomes a kaleidoscope of colors. I love fall. I live for fall. I can't wait for fall and Sending my kids back to school and the, the bills coming back and all the things that come with fall. There's nothing like going through Chestnut Ridge or Letchworth in the fall. It's nothing quite like it. I love fall. And I love winter. I love the first snowfall, and you look outside and there's the flakes falling down, and it's like you're living in a in a snow globe, and it's beautiful. It takes the most hardened Western New Yorker to not like it. And even there's something awe-inspiring about lake effect snowstorms, and you kind of batten down the hatches and hope that your home is still standing in the morning. It's just incredible. And after a long winter, I love the first day of spring. When the, that first chance when you open up the windows of your house and let the fresh air begin to blow through, or when you roll down the window, look at me rolling down my window of my car like it's 1988. Uh, when you roll down your window of the car, kids, there used to be this little thing that you'd roll it down. Uh, but that first chance of fresh air after a cold winter, and you see the leaves begin to bud, and your nose is running because of allergies, even that is somehow wonderful. But... Thank God for July and August. Thank God for the summer. This, these are the days that we're in right now that we look forward to all year long. We live for these days. And one of the best kept secrets about Western New York for people who are outside of this area is how great our summers are. Thank God for July and August. And this time of year as we enjoy our leisure time and the longer days and the warm days outside, it's common for us to punctuate our days and our descriptions of our lives with the word Blessed. As in, sitting in the shade, dri- sipping lemonade, blessed. Tropical vacation, blessed. Sitting poolside, blessed. Didn't get lunch on my shirt, blessed. And that word blessed is, is really a good word to use to describe what our life is like in July and August. Two syllables, July and August are Blessed. You got to add that second syllable and describe July and August. It's blessed. It is a sweet time. And I hope that your summer is sweet. I hope that you have wonderful summer plans. I hope that when we turn the calendar to September, you look back and say, boy, i really got to enjoy all the things that I wanted to enjoy. I got to do the things I enjoyed doing and got to enjoy time outside and with the people I love. I hope that you have a wonderful summer. I hope you have wonderful summer plans and that they all come true and then some. Here at Watermark, we're going to be spending July and August looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the core of the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth for his disciples. When you look at everything that Jesus taught during his earthly ministry, this is really the core of it, the biggest chunk of it in scripture, and the real heartbeat of Jesus for his followers. If you're a new believer... The Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start to really get your, pulse, get your finger on the pulse of the heart of Christ for his people. And if you're a seasoned believer, if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, even sometimes just going back and reviewing and looking back on the Sermon on the Mount is a helpful way of kind of recalibrating and remembering who Christ has called us to be. And so we're going to be spending our summer, the next eight weeks or so, here on the Sermon on the Mount looking at this heart of Jesus' teaching. And the very first word in the Sermon on the Mount is blessed. Two syllables, blessed, which is this sense of ultimate goodness, ultimate blessing, the blessed life. What is the good life, as Jesus describes it here in the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, I want to take a little detour on our way and pick up a guy who had an encounter with Jesus in John chapter 9, a man who had been born blind, and Jesus had an interaction with him, and I think having him along for this journey as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount will help us to unpack all of what Jesus is saying and teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. Before we jump in, my name is Steve Dunmar. If we haven't met before, I'm the teaching pastor here at Watermark. Thanks for being here with us this morning on this this summer day. Welcome to all of you joining us online, whether you're joining us online live or later on the week. So glad you're joining us and it's great to be with you. If we haven't met yet, catch me out in the lobby or up front here. I'd love to get a chance to to meet you and and see your face and and shake your hand and and uh, learn your name. But uh, let's pray for us as we as we jump into the word. God, thanks for your thanks for your word. Thanks for the your goodness to us and your instructions for how we should live and how we should go about our lives that we're not left clueless but you've given us instructions and as we open up your word may we enter into the story may we hear your voice and sense your spirit prompting us we pray this in jesus name amen john chapter 9 beginning of verse 1 it says as jesus as he went along he saw a man blind from birth his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So Jesus and his disciples are making their way along. Jesus spots this man who is blind and his disciples ask the question, hey Jesus, who sinned to cause this to happen? Who sinned to cause this man to be blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Somehow, was, did he sin in the womb that caused this to happen? Or did his parents do something that caused this, this misfortune to fall in his life? Whose fault is it that this man is blind, they asked. And implied in the question is that if there is a summer of the soul, then there's also a winter of the soul. If you can be blessed, then you can also be cursed. And so they're saying, Lord Jesus, he appears to be cursed. There appears to be something that went wrong in his life. So whose fault is it? Is it his fault? Is it his parents' fault? Whose fault is it that he's blind in this way? And they don't use the word, but it sure sounds an awful lot like karma. It sure sounds like they're describing karma. Whose bad karma led him to be cursed in this way? Whose bad karma, was it him or his parents that, that gave him this misfortune in his life? And karma is a principle that's taught in several religions. And just as a primer to kind of refresh you in some of the basics if you're not familiar with karma, I want to point out to you that karma teaches that what goes around comes around. It's this idea that the universe is structured in such a way that the universe auto-corrects, that if you do something bad, you're going to get bad in return. If you do something good, you're going to get something good in return. And that the universe takes care of that all on its own, that whether in this life or in a future life, your karma will come back on you and repay you. Uh, Some people talk about instant karma and they think about instant karma in terms of something that happened a few weeks ago when I was driving down the road near my house and a car was tailgating me really hard. I'm sure none of you ever do this, but this car was tailgating me really close and pushing me and pushing me. And finally I got out of its way and it blew by me going well beyond the speed limit. And I knew I knew that like, the next intersection, the speed limit was going to drop, and there was always officers sitting there waiting, waiting to catch people doing exactly what he was doing. And I was more than a little bit happy when I saw the, uh, the car pull out and the red and blue lights. Some people would call that instant karma. You're getting what you deserve. You reap what you sow. And that's kind of the principle of karma. But the second thing is that karma is an attempt to explain the unexplainable. One of the things that makes karma attractive is that we can explain pain and suffering and good, that when somebody is blessed, when somebody experiences hardship or sickness or illness, that somehow that's tied to karma. It's this neat and tidy way of describing what is otherwise hard to explain. Why do people get cancer? Why do some people have all their their efforts be blessed and they get straight A's and everything they touch turns to gold, but others of us have to suffer along? Well, karma is a neat and tidy way to explain it. And I'm tipping my hand a little bit by saying that karma is a way of of trying to explain the unexplainable, because it's not quite that simple most of the time. You may know Jeff Foxworthy and his line of humors of you might be a redneck jokes. And one example of this is, if you think that the last words of the national anthem are gentlemen, start your engines, you might be a redneck. Uh, And if you have ever seen somebody suffer and thought, well, I wonder what they did to deserve that, you might believe in karma. If you've ever watched a natural disaster hit some part of the country or the world and thought, well, God must be trying to get their attention, you might just believe in karma. We might not call it karma, but a rose by any other name is still a rose. And often we talk about things as if karma is true. And that leads us to the third most important question for us today is, Hindus and Buddhists believe in karma, but what about Jesus? In Buddhism, karma is this principle that within this life that we get what we Put in and you reap what you sow. And if you do good things, you're going to get good in return. If you do bad things, you're going to get a bad return. In Hinduism, karma is the idea that whether in this life or a future life, you get what you. They, they believe in this endless loop of, of reincarnation that only ends when you finally get build up enough of a bank of karma that you get to dissolve kind of into this ether of nirvana. And they believe that whether in this life, that the good things that happen to you now might be because of the karma in a previous life or the bad things in this life or because of the bad karma in a previous life. But what about Jesus? Does Jesus believe in karma? Does Jesus teach anything that resembles karma in the gospels? And thankfully for us, we see his answer in the next verse, verse 3, where he says, No, 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 no. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In verse 6 it says, After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, put it on the man's eyes, and go, and t- go he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, this word means sent. So the man went and washed, and check this out, he came home seeing so Jesus emphatically says, no, 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 no. There's, the Bible does not teach karma. The karma is not what rules the day. And as though to emphatically reinforce this point, he heals the man right then and there. And it's, it's as though he right away interrupts them in mid-thought and says, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question if you're asking who sin to cause this man to be born blind. It's not, not a matter of who sinned. They're asking the entirely wrong question. And he heals the man almost to cut this out at the root. Because, yes, there are times in Scripture where it seems like God sends a plague or does something to get people's attention. But we are never told from our position to look out the world and to forecast what's happening. To look at this hurricane and say, well, obviously God's trying to get their attention. Or look at this diagnosis and say, well, obviously they must have done something wrong. There is never a verse or chapter or book of the Bible that ever says that we can forecast from this side. Yes, from God's side, he might do that once in a while, but not always, not as a hard and fast rule. Yes, if you smoke a pack a day for 20 years and you develop emphysema, that's not karma. It's right on the box. If you never never balance your checkbook and you run out of money, that's not karma. That's math. If you get a speeding ticket at some point in your life in Western New York, that's not karma. That's just a matter of time in our area here. But yet, throughout, man, every year, there's somebody at some soapbox at some level somewhere that sees some natural disaster or some diagnosis or something, some tragedy happening somewhere and says, that's karma. They don't use the word karma, but a rose by enter the name is still a rose. And so often when when hurricanes hit New Orleans or hurricanes and earthquakes hit Haiti and other disasters and diseases, people have been quick to say, God must be doing something. They must have done something wrong. This is God punishing them. But in fact, there's an entire book of the Bible. The book of Job is all about answering this question. The book of Job is all about this man who's an upright, righteous man named Job who suffers incredible, unspeakable loss. And at first, his friends gather around him and they wisely keep their mouths shut. But then eventually they're like, come on, Job, just come on, tell the truth. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, Job, t- come on, things like this don't happen. You must have some bad karma somewhere tucked away in your heart that we just don't know about. You must have done something wrong to deserve all this loss, to, to deserve all of this suffering. Come on, Job, just fess up. And he says, no, there's nothing. What are you talking about? And they just continue to prod him and needle him. And finally, at the end of the book of Job, the short version of the, the book of Job is not so fast. It is not that neat and tidy. It is not that simple. No, there was nothing that Job had outrightly done to deserve the suffering that he received. And so right away in the book of Job, we're, we're told to dismiss any of this sense that there is karma, that, that we can diagnose other people's problems this way. So... Karma says if something bad happens, we must deserve it. But Jesus says not so fast. So if it's not karma, what's happening here? I heard a story about a woman named Karen who had a young friend who was in a wheelchair and she she wanted to understand better what it was like for her young friend to spend all of her days in a wheelchair. And so she worked with her husband to rent a wheelchair and she decided she was going to spend an afternoon and they'd go to a museum and she would spend the day in a wheelchair just to see what it was like to spend a day in her shoes. And so they went to the museum and sure enough they found about the challenges of parking and, and finding doors she could get in through the chair and, and elevators and navigating the crowds and all those things. And sure enough she said there were some things that were easier than others and there were some challenges that hadn't been addressed yet. But the biggest things that, that she noticed was that for the five hours she sat in the wheelchair, she said, no one looked at me. For five hours, it was like I was invisible, she says. Men, women, and children, I, it was like they looked right past me. She said, it, it, she tried, after she realized what was happening, she tried her hardest to kind of like will people to make eye contact with her and to try to you know, stare at them almost awkwardly. And it just for five hours, she was invisible. Part of the sting of suffering is how invisible sufferers feel. That the awkwardness of pain and suffering and grief and homelessness and unemployment makes it awkward to look at people who are suffering. So some of us just avert our eyes. Some of us just look the other way. And that creates a sting, kind of an infection of the soul for people who suffer. One of my favorite Bible teachers says that in this story of the blind man, The first miracle is not that his blindness is healed. The first miracle is that Jesus sees him. That here is a man, as he says, who was not only blind, but invisible. Every day he was there in his community. Every day he was out there. And every day people walked past him and never saw him. And then all of a sudden along comes Jesus. And Jesus sees him. And that's the first miracle in this this story of the blind man is that Jesus sees him. And he looks at him. And his heart goes out to him. Some of you are not only suffering, you feel invisible. You feel like no one sees. You feel like no one knows. The question here is not so much who sinned this man or his parents that caused him to suffer in this way. The question is why is this man invisible in his community? How can no one see him? Well, so it's a beautiful twist in the story then that Jesus not only sees him, but that Jesus, in probably one of the most dramatic miracles we have from Jesus, Jesus spits on the ground. I won't reenact that for you. He spits on the ground and he makes some mud with his spit and he smears it on the guy's eyes and smears it over his face and then sends him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he's washed in the pool of Siloam, he's healed and he can see again. And I think part of why Jesus did it in such dramatic fashion is to make sure that he's getting this problem of karma at the root, that it's not so simple, that it's not so open and shut, that there's there's more complex things happening here and that his compassion is greater than karma. And now that we've seen this, now that we've seen this blind man who's invisible and now is seen and he's healed and Jesus has addressed this root of karma, now we're ready to turn to the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're ready to hear Jesus' words and we need to have the blind man with us. We need to hear this formerly blind and invisible man sitting beside us to hear what Jesus says, to hear what it would sound like to him. Not what it would sound like to us, but what it would sound like to him. And we find this in Luke chapter 6. This is actually, the, this is called the Beatitudes, the opening part of the Sermon on the Mount. And then we find it in Matthew chapter five, but it's also repeated in Luke's own words in Luke chapter six. And we're gonna read Luke's version this morning in Luke chapter six where it says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you who are But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are hungry now, for you shall be hungry. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we naturally see this as instructions, like something we need to open up and apply to our lives. And so as a result, we get to this, the Beatitudes, this opening part, and we're trying to compare ourselves to this list. and In Matthew's version, he talks about the poor in spirit, and he talks about those who mourn. He talks about the meek. He talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecutor for righteousness. But I think this opening part of the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most misunderstood parts of the entire Sermon on the Mount. That perhaps is the most misunderstood part of the whole Sermon on the Mount because some of my favorite Bible teachers look at this passage and say, this is it. This is the goal. This is the ideal Christian life. This is the good life. Aim for this. Try to imitate this. Look like this and you're all set. As long as your life looks like this, this is what Jesus is calling us to be. But when we read these verses with the blind man beside us and hear what the way Jesus saw him and hear the way that Jesus spoke to him and the way that Jesus healed him in dramatic fashion, we see that the Beatitudes don't make sense unless we see Jesus is undoing karma. The Beatitudes don't make sense unless we see him healing the blind man. The Beatitudes don't make sense unless we know that the Beatitudes are a love letter, not a speed limit. The Beatitudes are not a set of instructions. They're an invitation. The Beatitudes aren't another hoop you've got to jump through. They are an invitation to you. The Beatitudes aren't something you have to measure yourself up against. They are the heart of God for you. There is so much in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is going to call us to radical discipleship, to radical devotion, to all-out commitment to him. But he doesn't begin there. He doesn't begin with a demand. He doesn't begin with requiring anything of us. He doesn't ask us to do anything. He just sees us. He just sees us as we are, sees our hurting, sees our sickness, sees our our broken hearts, and he has compassion towards us. He doesn't begin with a demand. He begins with compassion towards all the lost and the hurting people of the world. Dallas Willard says it better than I could possibly say it. He he paraphrases an updated list of people who would be on this list if we were to write it today. And he says, "Jesus is blessing the flunkouts and the dropouts and the burned outs and the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren and pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed and the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the children with parents living on the the parents with children living on the street." And the children with parents in the rest home, the lonely and the incompetent, the emotionally starved and the emotionally dead, and on and on, end quote. Jesus is is blessing the orphan and the widow, the people with a cancer diagnosis, and the people with no diagnosis so that they can't receive the treatment that they so desperately need. He's reaching out to those who are lost and the least who are desperate and hopeless, who are heartbroken, who've been passed over, picked on, rejected, and weren't even granted an interview. He's speaking to those who are most desperate, who are most longing, and the word he uses to describe us is blessed. Not because of the condition we're in, but because of his compassion for us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that the place we see the Beatitudes most fully on display, that he he teaches this on one mountain. But then a few years later, one day, there was another mountain. And on Mount Golgotha, the greatest curse that was ever poured on on a person was poured out on Jesus. And anyone who saw him that day said, there's, what, "There's a picture of what it looks like to be cursed." And through the curse that was poured out on Jesus on the cross, the greatest blessing we have ever known was poured out on us. By his stripes, we are healed. And he undid karma at the cross. Here's why it matters. Because some of you not only feel cursed, you feel invisible. You suffer in silence. You hurt alone. Your pillow is soaked with tears. And you think nobody knows. Nobody sees. Nobody cares. And the greatest person who ever lived began the most important speech that anyone has ever given by saying, in paraphrase, I see. And I care. And I notice. The blind man, who is, for all intents and purposes, invisible, suddenly is anything but invisible. Now, everyone, you can't miss him. And the people who want to persecute Jesus are trying to track him down to get the whereabouts of where Jesus is. And they come to him in verse 26 and they ask him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Check, check, and check this out, this is hilarious. Do you want to become his disciples too? Here's this, like, this playfulness of the formerly blind man who knows that they're out to persecute Jesus, that they're trying to arrest and seize Jesus. And he says, he kind of playfully their their jealousy of him as devotion. Do you want to become his disciples too? But that question is appropriate for us. How do we get in on this? How do we get in on this life? I want to share two two points of application. The first is that God notices. He sees. And some of you, the most important place for the Sermon on the Mount to begin with you is not that there's anything you need to do, just to know that he cares. That he cares about you, that he loves you, and that the heart of the living God goes out to you in your situation. Will you receive it? Will we open our arms to that, receive that loving and compassion back from him? Second, God notices. First, God notices. But second, do we notice? It is often the case that those of us who have realized that we realize that God has seen us, we naturally lift up our eyes and begin to notice people around us. But do we notice the blind and the orphan? Do we notice the widow and the cancer patient? Do we notice the person in the wheelchair? Do we see them? and have compassion on them. Thank God for July and August. Thank God for summertime. And I hope you're having a summer of the soul, but many people around you are not. There are people who, despite what the calendar says, are in a winter of the soul. And one of the privileges we have as believers is the chance to let them in on the secret that at the cross, Jesus undid karma and has unveiled the ultimate blessing on humanity for those who will receive it heard the story about a woman named Lauren who was battling chronic pain. Uh, she didn't have a diagnosis. She was one of these who was going to end this doctor's appointments trying to get a diagnosis for what was wrong with her and was coming up with no answers. And some days her pain was manageable. Other days it was worse. And on some days it was so bad she couldn't walk. And on those days she, her mom would, would uh, push her around in a wheelchair and because she didn't have a diagnosis, she struggled with what to tell people when people asked why she was in a wheelchair. And so she would kind of work up a speech and she had this, this speech ready to go. If anybody saw her, if she was out at a mall or something and someone that she knew saw her and asked what, what had happened, why she was in the wheelchair. And so she'd have that speech ready to go and the, the pain was difficult. Having to have that speech ready was difficult, but she said the worst part was that she never actually had ended up having to share that story because nobody ever asked. She was invisible in the chair. And so on top of the physical pain was the pain of being ignored and overlooked and invisible. And that repeated itself over and over again in her life until one day, one day she and her mom were at the mall and her mom was pushing her through the mall and they approached approached a a group of young adults with Down syndrome. And one of those young adults turned and saw her and said, hi, and then another then another of these young adults with Down syndrome turned and saw her and greeted her until gradually the entire group had turned and looked at her and greeted her. And she was overwhelmed. In her own words, she says, their warmth was something I had never experienced before in interactions with strangers. It touched my heart in a way that I can't fully describe. I was not invisible to them. Instead, I was completely visible and worthy of greeting." That's the message of the Beatitudes in a story. That we are not invisible to God. He sees and he cares. And that when we see people with the eyes of Jesus, we make them feel like they are worthy of greeting. And the word Jesus uses to describe that is blessed. God, thank you for your eyes for us that you see us that you are not indifferent to our suffering not indifferent to our pain that you have compassion for our situation and you enter into it and rescue us from it help us to have eyes to see the people around us who are hurting help us to see have eyes to see people the way that you see them and to have compassion on them and to love them the way that you have loved us. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Since we're going to be spending July and August at the feet of Jesus, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, we thought it was appropriate that we begin our summer and this journey together by coming to the Lord's table together band is going to lead us in a time of reflection to prepare our hearts. If you did not, if you did not grab one of the cups and, and the, the bread on your way in, you've got a moment to run out and do that. And uh, after we've had a chance to pray and to reflect a little bit, I'll come back out again and lead us to the table together. Let's lift our voices together.
0: Let Bye.
1: Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. After supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Other religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, believe that if you just do good enough, you can work your way out of the hole that you're in that if you just work hard enough, you can reverse the toll of karma and climb back out of that hole. Christianity is a little more realistic that there is no way out of the hole that we've dug ourselves, not by our own effort. The only way out of the hole that we've dug ourselves into is cross-shaped. And on the cross, Jesus took on the burden that we could not pay for ourselves. And on the cross, he, he took the punishment that was due to us. And at the cross, we were given a blessing that we could not earn. Jesus, the Lord doesn't owe us anything. But out of his gratuitous love, he paid it all. We practice open communion here at Watermark, which means that you don't have to be a member of our church to to participate here. As long as you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have confessed your sins to him, received the forgiveness of your sins, and committed to following him the rest of your life, you are welcome to the table. It is not our table. It's his table. And he invites you. So we invite you. But first I want to invite you that maybe for t- today, it's a good day for you to receive that cross-shaped blessing. To receive the forgiveness. So I want to invite you to pray with me. Oh God, thank you. Oh Jesus, thank you. You know the hole that I'm in. You know the way that I've dug myself deep. You know how dark it was. And then your light came. Jesus, thank you for seeing me in the bottom of my hole and pulling me out for your goodness. Forgive my sins. Wash me clean. Make me new. The rest of my life to you, to follow after you with my whole heart. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Lord, for the rest of us, we thank you for the table and for the the bread and the cup and for the salvation that they represent and for the way that you even join us at this table. Lord, thank you for your hospitality at this table. Thank you for your goodness to us. Meet with us here, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus gathered there with his disciples, took the bread, broke it, and said, This is my body, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. Same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, This cup represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it to the bottom in remembrance of me. Take and drink. Lord, we thank you for your love and grace to us in our brokenness. We thank you for way that you heal us in the broken places, we bring to you all of our brokenness and our broken hearts and our broken dreams and pray that you'd heal us in the broken places. And the way that your blood was poured out for us, we pour out our hearts to you and pray that you would fill us up, fill us up with your spirit. May our lives overflow with blessing that we can be a blessing to others. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ben is going to lead us in a final reflection in the same way that we can't get ourselves out of the hole. We'd we'd also ask that you clean up after yourself and for the sake of our team here and uh, take your elements out with you as you go. That'd be a big help to our team. Let's lift our voices in song. I just
0: want you and nothing else and nothing else and nothing else will do I just want else, and nothing else, nothing else will do. I just want to end our time here with a scripture. In Romans 15, 13, it says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can trust in him. So as we leave today, just be guided by his presence. Keep your eyes fixed on him because he will never fail you. He will never lead you astray. I pray that you're blessed this week. Have a good week.